Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Review Podcast. I'm Tom Miller, editor of Soul Review Magazine and marketing director here at Baywa RE Solar Systems. And I'm very excited today. We're, we're joined by Brian White. He's a research analyst at Wood McKenzie, and he was in our January town hall. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for coming back and to talk more with us about financing. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks for having me. For sure. And we're also joined by Rachel Shapira. She's our director of uh, residential financing. Rachel, I think it's been, what, three days since we did another our last podcast. It's great to have you back again. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Good to see you too. So today we're going to talk solar finance. And Brian is going to walk us through the current trends that he's seeing in the resi finance space, as well as what he he's seeing up around the bend for us. And also he's going to share some tips on, on how to set your solar contract contracting business up for success in the financing space. So I'm really excited to, to dig in there. And in the bottom third of the show, I want to talk briefly about sales and marketing organizations. You, you might have ter- heard the term sales originators to, to reference these, these sales and, and lead gen companies, but you know these are the companies that help originate deals for solar contractors. And what I'm hoping in, this, in that segment is to set the table for our upcoming town hall at the end of February. And Brian will be joining us for that as well, as will Rachel. Um, but questions like, you know, sh- how should an EPC installer decide whether or not to work with a sales organization? You know, what are the best practices for managing the homeowner experience uh, when sales and marketing happens outside of your company, you know, uh, and what are the market trends? And that event is on the 24th of February at 10 a.m. Pacific, and we'll share a link in uh, the show notes here. So please let us know what questions you have on originators, on sales companies. What are your hopes and fears on this topic? Let us know and we'll cover them in the next town hall. So let's get to the main feature today. Brian, let's turn to you and talk about some industry trends. Um, I'm definitely out of my skis here a little bit in the financing conversation. And Rachel is going to play. She's going to be my wing woman, wing woman. So she's going to chime in and help me out whenever, whenever I get confused, which will probably be in the next few minutes. But Brian, what are you tracking at, at a high level uh, in the financing space? Sure. Yeah. So I think just to set the stage, um, at Wood McKenzie, I track the residential solar sector in two uh, main buckets, one being 30, third-party ownership and the other being customer ownership. And within customer ownership, there's actually two sub-segments being cash systems and loan systems. Um, so, you know, third-party ownership or TPO would be a lease or a power purchase agreement. And then on the other side of the coin, you have customer ownership, loans, and cash. So what we've been seeing is residential solar loan growth continues to outpace PPAs, leases, and cash sales which has just been a trend that's been happening for a few years now. And lately, longer term low interest rate loans are growing increasingly popular. And these products establish low monthly payments, which has been really resonating with the customer. Hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of a point you brought up in our last town hall uh, around a homeowner's bill. There's actually like a really high incentive to pay that bill. Can, can you talk about that a little bit for us? Sure. Yeah. So just to go into that a little bit further, most solar customers are saving money by offsetting a portion of their utility bill through the power generated by their solar system. And this is generally true uh, whether the customer has a monthly loan or a lease payment or assigned a PPA contract. So if solar 
is creating bill savings for the customer, then they would actually be worse off if they stopped paying their solar bill. And eventually that would lead to a default and then system removal in all likelihood. And so that would bring that customer back to paying their full utility bill. And that's probably going to be higher than the cost of their solar bill plus whatever remained of their utility bill after accounting for that system offset. Mm, yeah. Rachel, I, I'm, I'm wondering from the financing company point of view, like this is like a repayment dream. It, it if, is. It, it's like built in. Homeowners have that incentive right there. You know, solar financiers have long been trying to convince capital markets that this would be the case. Um, the issue is just that solar finance products haven't survived a recession yet. So there were, there's been no data to show that our hypothesis that homeowners will be motivated to pay their bills was true. It was still just a hypothesis because it was such a young and immature financial product. As Brian mentioned in the last town hall, through 2020, we've seen a dramatic recession that's hit uh, a huge portion of uh, American families really hard and people have still been able to pay their bills because it saves them money. And so the solar financiers have been able to say, you know, our, our hypothesis has been tested. We have confidence in it. And as a result, more capital is coming into the market, which hopefully will drive down the cost of solar financing. Just to add quickly, I mean, you can see in the the data that's that it now exists throughout the last year or so that delinquency rates are not only you know holding strong, but a lot of companies actually have better payment performance than they did before the pandemic, which just you know further proves that point that this is a strong asset class where consumers have that high incentive to pay, you know to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. So this is actually, I didn't have a chance to write this out in the questions, but I've been wondering about, and I was excited to talk to you about this question that I have. One of the questions that a number of people have asked me over the last year or so was like, do you think so the solar financiers are going to you know, continue to be essential or relevant uh, intermediaries in between capital and um, solar installers? Mm. As, That's a really um, good question. Yeah. As, as capital uh, gets more comfortable with this asset class, I'm yeah. really curious to see what Brian has to say about this. I have some thoughts of my own, but I, mm. I'd love to hear what Brian has to say about this particular topic. Extremely relevant, especially in light of um, some recent news with major providers, namely Sunlight Financial, who you know just went announced their intention to go public through a SPAC merger. Um, and something I was paying close attention there as they are kind of selling the value proposition of their company, but I think it is broadly true of them and their competitors, which is, you know, the capital providers that they are partnering with don't necessarily want to be involved in the day-to-day -day of solar operations. They want to, to provide the cash necessary to fund those operations, but not necessarily be um, involved directly with those operations. That's where companies like these, the financiers can really come in and add value with their proprietary technology um, and software that has really been built to assist contractors with you know, managing their pipeline, um, fast credit approvals, just overall making the sales process more seamless. And I don't see banks and credit unions that, you know, while they might be enticed by the, the opportunity here, I don't see them interested in actually developing any of those things, which, you know, just leaves a place for those companies like the, the financiers to kind of fill that gap. A hundred percent. I would agree there's going to continue to be a role for the intermediaries. I think it's also that solar 
um, unlike a lot of other home improvements, doesn't necessarily lead to immediate benefit for the homeowner as soon as the work is completed. You know, if I get a, if I get a loan out so I can put a new deck on my house, or if my roof is leaking and roofers come and patch the roof, as soon as the work is done, I'm benefiting from the work. And that changes my relationship with my willingness to pay for that work. Solar, unlike those types of home improvements, does not lead to immediate benefit for the homeowner. It's interconnection that is the milestone that homeowners start um, ben- that is the point at which homeowners start benefiting. And homeowners sometimes are reticent to pay for services until they start getting benefit. And so I think there's always going to be added complexity because so many players are at the table and determining, you know, can the system get inspected, permitted, uh, you know, everything else properly? Can everything go smoothly with the local utility? There are so many stumbling blocks still in the solar industry to just get a homeowner to the point where they're deriving benefit from the work that was paid for. And so I think there's going to be a continued role for an intermediary to make sure that that we can that the capital can be deployed safely through kind of all those potholes and so that the homeowner experience can be um, a quality one. Thanks, Rachel, for, the, for making that point. And I think we'll, we're going to be talking a little more about the future uh, as well later on in the segment. But, you know, let's talk about the players in this space. Brian, going back to you, what are you seeing as the, as the opportunities here? Who are those players, you know, and what are you seeing happening there? Sure. Yeah. The the financier landscape for residential solar is uh, primarily dominated by a handful or two of, of major PPO and loan providers um, driving most of the volume in the market. You know, they've constantly been rolling out new product offerings as of late, and mainly they're doing this to attract more installer partners onto their networks um, and able to grow their own businesses. So we see even TPO players like SunPower and Sonova that are jumping onto the loan bandwagon through direct partnerships with banks or, you know, investing in their in-house loan products to kind of drive that volume. Mm. And what about the competition there, particularly around, you know, those financiers? How are they competing? Yeah, I, I see three main ways the way that they're competing today. And one going back to you know, what I just said is, is product development tying into new offerings. You see almost every month a provider introduce a new interest rate or a new loan tenor or what have you. And that's largely, largely driven by the fact that contractors, both small and large, are, are looking for ways to broaden the financial product suites that they offer to their customer bases. So financiers are, are competing by being, you know, trying to offer the widest array of options that they can. Uh, secondly, I see them competing on you know, technology and, and software enhancements. Um, major providers are constantly updating their platforms to make the process easier for contractors. Mm. And we've we've seen some major announcements over the last year or so from companies like Mosaic and LoanPal to uh, upgrade their platforms, provide mobile capabilities, um, just automate uploading of documents and things of that nature. And then lastly, what I'll say about competition is something we noticed that was kind of a pre-pandemic trend was financiers that were dispersing payments earlier on in the project life cycle to their contractor partners. And, and basically the way this works is, you know, a lot of the times the, the financier would provide more cash towards permission to operate as there was, you know, more due diligence and proof of the project being completed. But as, you know, the, the growth of the industry progresses and contractors are bidding for different partnerships and looking to, you know, extract better terms, one of those ways that financiers can kind of get more volume from those installers is to give them cash earlier on before permission to operate. Due to some of the complexities and challenges we saw with COVID and uh, stretching timelines, that kind of trend was reversed 
for a few months. But in the recent months, as the market's recovering, we kind of seen a return to that trend of pushing cash out to the uh, to the contractor earlier on in the project lifecycle. Mm. Rachel, I see, I see you nodding your head there. You're you're like our boots on the ground. It, it, does the, does all of that square with what you're seeing and talking to folks about? Hundred percent. I would also yeah. add another place where they're competing is approval rates um, and ease of use for the homeowner. Uh, installers are very much focused on how many people can be approved because that affects their customer acquisition cost and the number of jobs they can win. And um, they're also very interested in uh, ease of use for the homeowner. The easier it is for the homeowner to to get through the you know process, the more loyalty or more enthusiasm a lot of the installers feel because it's hard enough to sell someone on the idea of going solar, especially in certain markets where there isn't widespread solar adoption yet. They hate having a lot of additional hurdles in the form of uh, getting financing. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Rachel. And and I'm remembering in our last town hall, we we talked a bit about the large amount of capital that's entering the solar space. Brian, what are you tracking there? Um, and do you want to get into here a bit, you know, about what the future might look like as well? Sure. Yeah. So as as we've been talking about here in, in the prior town hall, a lot of institutional money is flowing into the space, whether you're looking at the $800 million equity raise that Lone Pal announced um, recently that took place over 2020, or, you know, I mentioned the SPAC merger with Sunlight earlier, or, or you know, announcements of extending warehouse facilities, forward flow partnerships. The announcements are everywhere that investors want in on this space. Um, and we, we saw over $2 billion in public residential solar securitization volume last year. That's set to increase this year for sure. While major financiers and national installers are the traditional targets of these investments, we could also start to see some of the larger regional installers attracting investment of different varieties this year as they kind of prove out that they have the scale and the volume to um, kind of draw eyeballs to them. And then looking out over the next, you know, few years, five years down the road, I just expect to keep seeing more and more money flow in as investor confidence in the industry grows. That should in turn lead to declining cost of capital and create this virtual cycle of, of growth and in, in capital investment. And that really benefits the entire industry. All stakeholders stand to benefit from declining cost of capital, whether you're a large provider that's kind of uh, help financing these projects or you're a small contractor on the on the receiving end of that of that uh, cash. So, you know, as we see new and diverse sets of capital providers dip their toes into the industry, that just is good news all around. And then another interesting point I'll mention in terms of, I think, where all this is headed in the financing space, just seeing how residential solar financiers expand their kind of solar adjacent verticals like battery storage, home improvement. Um, a lot of these are still in the early stages, but are definitely part of the growth story for these companies. And then there's also opportunities on the horizon for things like financing the deployment of EV charging, roof replacement, and smart energy devices. So that just provides further revenue streams for these companies that can kind of leverage their solar businesses and um, attract customers and, and service them in different ways. Very cool. Rachel, are there other things you want to talk about in terms of the future? I would expect to see, um, at least among the solar lenders, I, I'm curious to see how loan structures change as the ITC steps down. Most loan structures are structured around the are built around the ITC. They basically calculate people's monthly payment, assuming that they're going to get the ITC and pay it in a lump sum to the to the 
to the finance provider and then do a recalculation or a reamortization, you know, about a year and a half into the life of the product, assuming that someone would have gotten their ITC and paid it down by then. And then, you know, have the monthly payment adjust based on whatever actually happens, you know, whether the homeowner pays it or not. I'm assuming that as the ITC steps down, you know, it, it will the reamortization structure change? Is Are there going to be more frequent amortizations in a loan, assuming that there would be other times people would make monthly payments? Are we just going to move to kind of a flat fixed rate loan structure? Another loan trend that I'm seeing is, you know, it's very popular right now, or there's a rise in popularity of, you know, same as cash that then turn into fixed rate loans. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how the financiers innovate um, as the ITC steps down, or frankly, just to compete um, in a landscape where it can be hard for them to differentiate and where people don't necessarily want to just participate in a race to the bottom on price. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. So Brian, thanks for that overview. That's, that's wonderful. Um, and giving us a, a little bit of a glimpse into what you're seeing into the future. Um, so I want to pivot here and, and talk about some practical tips, you know, or, or Brian, best practices for solar contractors when it comes to financing. And Rachel and I have talked about this in the past, um, but it would be great to, to get your take on, you know, what are those best practices that, that list that, that solar contractors can have to really set themselves up for success in, in the financing arena. So yeah, if you have any thoughts on that, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I, I have four things, which are certainly not exhaustive, um, mm -hmm. but top of mind for when I'm talking to installers lately. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about technology platforms, just to reiterate there. Um, you know, contractors need to be working with partners who have platforms that are easy to use and can seamlessly integrate into whatever platforms they're using with their sales organizations or partners that are, you know, involved in that process. And at the same time, installers should also just take the time to make sure that what they have on their end um, is set up properly for seamless integration for, you know, an, an easy sales process. So technology and software are, are, are number one. Mm. Uh, secondly, managing uh, counterparty risk. You know, when you're a contractor looking to partner with a financier, I think it's important to pay attention to what they're asking of you to provide to the you know, basically for due diligence. Obviously, it's no fun to be overburdened with paperwork and requirements, um, but you can rest a little easier knowing that whatever they're asking of you, they're likely asking of other contractors of, uh, you know, similar size and, and, um, and, you know, geography and things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, that's usually a good sign. It means that they're taking, you know, it seriously that the relationships that they are trying to forge in order to grow and the, you know, more due diligence they're doing, the less counterparty risk that you have that the financier might have a problem down the road. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, is um, looking at managing your product offerings and making sure that your financing partners are actually capable of financing what you want to offer to the consumer, um, whether that's you know home efficiency upgrades or battery storage being bundled with, with solar or standalone batteries. Um, you want to make sure that they have the proper capital to provide to you and the bandwidth to provide to you that they can handle the volume you're doing, whatever markets you're actively operating in. Um, sometimes there's restrictions on different geographies for different products. Um, so you want to make sure that, you know, they're capable of actually financing whatever volume you're doing. And then lastly is kind of a, just a broader point around balancing the diversification of your offerings and the simplicity. It makes sense to have a few different financing partnerships and, and different relationships with, with organizations that are going to help your organization grow, but you also don't want to make it overly complicated. The, uh, the more partnerships that you have, the more products, the more tools 
the more systems you have to integrate and make sure that they are all compatible. Um, and that's also just more that your sales staff has to learn to be able to, to utilize and, and communicate when they're trying to make the pitch to the customer. So you want to be able to provide some, some level of choice, but you also don't want it to be too overwhelming. Yeah. Those are all great points. And I do want to plug something coming up that Rachel and I have been working on, which is a, a solar financing 101 podcast and, and kind of a, a lesson, you know, for if you're getting started in this. And I think we could certainly add in Brian's thoughts there as well. But Rachel, anything else you want to call out that that maybe we didn't hit on in terms of um, what are those key things that solar contractors should be thinking about? Um, I would also say, you know, understand that there's a relationship between approval rates and price. And while there isn't necessarily one strategy that works for everyone, um, don't look at price in a vacuum, look at price holistically. You know, the price that you're, that is associated with any particular loan term, understand the price is going to vary based on tenor, based on approval rates and based on customer service and technology sophistication. So look at, don't look at price in a vacuum, look at it as kind of one of the levers that you can pull on um, to offset pain in other areas. Great. So I, I want to transition for the last part of our show and, and chat about originators. And, and again, we're going to be hosting a town hall on this topic on February 24th. So make sure you come in and hear that full panel discussion. Um, but maybe let's, let's just spend a few minutes teeing this up. Rachel, you were the one who originally brought this idea um, to Jessica and myself, kind of as a way to have a neutral discussion of the pros and cons with, with a number of stakeholders, bringing them on the town hall to talk as a group. The reason I wanted to have this discussion is I think originators, when things go well, can really help an installer keep their costs under control and help them drive the growth of their business. But when it's not managed well, it can really lead to some poor homeowner experiences. Because if um, a customer's expectations does not match what happens in reality, even if what happens in reality is good, it's still not going to make someone happy because we're usually only happy when our expectations are met. And I think it's very easy when two, when the homeowner experience is owned by two or possibly three separate organizations from the end-to-end -end experience for things to go wrong if the handoff doesn't go well or if things are not communicated smoothly. Yeah. And very often it's solar installers who are left holding the bag and cleaning up the mess if that homeowner experience is not managed smoothly from end-to-end. -end. And I've seen some installers really get their hands around how to manage homeowner experience while using originators. And I thought it would be great as I'm having more conversations with installers who are saying, especially in, in less mature solar markets saying, you know, how do I decide whether or not to use this business model? And if, if I decide to put my foot in the water, what do I do to make sure that I can learn from other people's mistakes rather than repeating the same mistakes others have made before me? And that's one of the things that I really love about the Tana Halls. Like, let's talk about what's happening in the industry. Let's share best practices and let's make the industry just stronger as a whole as a result. So I think that's what we want to do with this town hall. Very cool. And, and Brian, I know you've been tracking this a bit at, at Woodmac and I, and I want to go to you, but Rachel, can you just tell us real quick, like, who are you thinking about um, bringing on the town hall to have that discussion? Who's on the panel? Well, we, we have Brian here and I'm so glad that you're going to be joining us as someone who tracks market trends and, and talks to installers every day, or I don't know if that's fair to say. Frequently? Often. Often. <laughs> I wish it was <laughs> keep... every day. I wish it was every day, but... Yeah. to keep your fingers on the pulse of the industry. Um, but we're also bringing in Yassine Norris, um, the Vice President of Enterprise Partnerships and Partner Development at Sonova. He's been a solar veteran in the space for more than 12 years um, and been in solar financing um, many years. And I'm hoping he 
he can come in and bring a lot of perspectives as someone who's talked to a lot of installers. We're also bringing in Valerie Serrato from the VP of the residential business at Sunworks. She's been a home builder over 20 years and a solar veteran of the last eight plus and has also gotten very familiar with um, best practices in this area and will be able to bring in the installer's perspective on this front. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, again, that's uh, February 24th, 10 a.m. Pacific. Please join us then and send us your questions. What do you want to know about originators? What, what's on top of your mind? Brian, so yeah, uh, what are you tracking at, at Woodmac and, and what's your interest in this topic? Yeah, as, as Rachel said, this is um, sort of a phenomenon that's not new, but you know, I think being a little bit revisited just with the overall hyper-focus on sales strategy in light of COVID. Um, I know that we at Woodmac really started to hone in on topics like these when COVID hit because it just became apparent that um, one of the biggest impacts of COVID was just how companies were going to adapt sales and marketing strategies to kind of make up for the fact that in-person interactions were so limited, which are so integral to traditional residential solar sales and and interaction with consumers. So there's a lot of logistics that contractors need to manage with these types of third-party relationships that Rachel alluded to. Um, And for instance, you know, one that we've heard about a lot is just they need to keep track of where their sales partners are actually still able to go door to door in certain markets to, you know, create leads, close sales, uh, where they might be most exposed to temporary lockdowns and keeping track of different city, county, state level lockdowns and what was allowed and what was not is uh, was a huge burden time-wise for these companies to figure that out. And, you know, it just is even trickier when you don't have all those employees in-house and you must communicate with them to see what they're up to and making sure that they're following the guidelines that they're supposed to be following. Um, So, you know, I think there's a lot more that we can talk about that at the town hall, as well as Mm -hmm. just the general pros and cons of of working with these these organizations and how they might drive growth and and the, the partnerships that uh, exist out there in the, in the world today. Yeah, great. And I'm looking forward to that discussion a lot. I'm wondering if you have any other suggestions um, for maybe those who who can't join our next town hall, but like you know, who are thinking of working with these sales orgs, any, any tips for contractors out there thinking about working with these sales uh, organizations? I'll go back to what I said earlier. The points around technology and product offerings are even more important and more relevant when you work with these third-party organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, integrating technology platforms, making sure that your systems can talk to each other. I can't emphasize enough how crucial that is for a seamless sales process. So when you bring in an additional party, um, that just adds a layer of complexity there. And you know, I've, I've heard stories of installers that um, are working with sales organizations who are pushing products. They want to sell solar, batteries, home efficiency, and then they, you know, they go around. They ter- they give the deal back to the installer, and they say, "Oh, my my financier doesn't actually finance that product." <laughs> um, you know, so you need to be on top of managing those relationships and making sure that you have the access to the capital for those types of sales and, you know, take stock and in, in what you're able to provide. Very cool. Rachel, anything else you want to tee up for, for our end of month town hall discussion on originators or anything else from the rest of the conversation today? Well, I, I was going to say just one, another best practices, you know, really make sure you have, um, that you understand what's happening in the proposal process, because the proposal should definitely be reflective of what you can follow through on both on the financing side and on the installation side. Um, you want to make sure that's aligned. And in the handoff process, you know, when an uh, account is handed over, you know, very often there's already a 
kind of a checklist that has to happen because the homeowner likely has to sign um, permitting information. They likely have to sign some paperwork for their utility and, and a bunch of other things. Uh, you know, some installers are starting to also check to make sure that the homeowner understands what they signed and that the homeowner's expectations align with what is being handed over to the installer at the time of the contract handoff to as early as possible, find out if there's any misalignment between what was said in the sales conversation and what's actually written on paper, because um, a lot of homeowners don't always read or notice when there's a gap between what was discussed and what was actually written out. Um, And you want to catch that as early as possible before you invest a lot of money in the transaction and then get really far along and find out that there's a gap between homeowner expectations and um, what's on the contract. So that would be one other thing, but I think we can dig into that more on, on the town hall and go into more best practices like that. I know Yasin and Valerie are going to have a lot of ideas on this front, and I'm sure Brian will have a few more up his sleeve too. Let's do it. <laughs> so I think that let's leave it there. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate your time and we're looking forward to chatting with you at the end of the month in the town hall. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast. I'm looking forward to next time. And Rachel, pleasure as always. Thank you again for doing this, Tom. And Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We really value your expertise and your willingness to share it with us.
did I flesh out, you know, the, that conversation and what you're, what you're driving for with that? Maybe, you know, talk, talk a little bit about, you know, where that came about and, and who you're bringing on to help us flesh out that topic. Yeah. So the idea for this came up actually, I mean, it's been percolating in my mind or this topic has been percolating in my mind the last several years in the industry. When I talk to installers, I realize there are a lot of folks who are either using outside organizations to help them with marketing and originating sales. Sometimes they'll have an in-house sales team and still have deals brought in by an outside organization. Other times they'll only have outside organizations. I've seen Mm -hmm. some companies um, have an inside sales team and then do both and then do just move to having the sales organizations and then move back. And then like you, you see people toggling back and forth. Mm. Um, but this topic keeps coming up when I talk to installers and over the last couple of quarters, um, it's come up in a number of conversations I've had with owners who are having strategic conversations about, does this make sense for my business to consider? Um, yeah. If so, when do I deploy it and how? And then how do I ensure that there's a good homeowner experience through it? Because at the end of the day, it's my name on the truck. It's my name on the warranty. And I have to make sure that the homeowner's expectations are being met. Yeah. So this topic keeps coming up in conversations I'm having with sales leaders across the nation. And I think it's a really important topic to dig into mm-hmm. because um, when it's well-managed, it can be a meaningful engine of growth for an EPC. Um, And when it goes south, it can really leave an EPC holding the bag in a really bad way. Mm. Um, So, and, you know, I think all of us here really care about, um, care about this industry. And we're still a young enough industry that when something bad ends up on the 10 o'clock news, it affects all of us. You know, it's not like solar, uh, solar, residential solar adoption is not at the point where someone associates one bad experience with a particular brand, they associate it with the whole industry. And so if we can help um, EPCs and solar installers figure out whether it makes sense for them to do it, understand what the market trend is and why people are, you know, going to market this way, if we can understand uh, what best practices are for managing it, we all are better off as an industry. 